Hello, this is Dr. Kevin Skinner. This is Pornography as I See It here with uh, Shondell, uh, Dr. Shondell Knowlton and Dr. Jill Manning. Uh, how are we doing today? Wonderful. You know, Good morning. How are we? Doing me, well. Doing well. well. Excited to be a part of this. You know, we're, we're really good at this morning stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, you know, I, I just want to express my appreciation for the two of you. You have uh, just wonderful listening and talking with you about really important issues for people who just are struggling uh, with, with some real life challenges. As we concluded this, the last part, uh, taking the right stand and how should I respond? Dr. Manning, you brought up a really interesting question. What do we do with relapse and how should we help the women who are trying to figure out how to respond to the relapse? And I'd like to actually pick up there before we get to, into today's topic, which is the stages of healing. Shondell, did you have any thoughts on that? Any thoughts specifically on, you know, what do we do with this relapse? Well, it's a real dilemma because I know personally of no addicts who haven't had a relapse of some kind at some point. So we've got, just got to be prepared to handle them. And I think coming up with a program to handle them and what is considered a relapse that we can get through versus a relapse that's just not acceptable. So now you're talking about perhaps severity. I mean, if a person goes out and has another sexual affair versus having a relapse with viewing pornography. Absolutely. And some people may not differentiate the two. And I think that's a, very much an individual decision. It's a very tough question, as I, I think was already brought up. It's a tough thing because sometimes relapse is a part of the recovery process. And, and that may sound strange, but 95% of people relapse. 5% of people go cold turkey. That's just based on statistics from the uh, Changing for Good book. And part of it is just even knowing that kind of information. That alone, the good education can be incredibly empowering to make clear choices. But we have to, again, distinguish between relapse that's, um, I don't want to say acceptable, but within a normal range and that which isn't. For example, if someone is, in a, and this is a different topic, but acting out with children, okay, we're not going to allow we're not allowing a chance. We're, you know, we're not allowing them a chance to do that again. You know, they'll be jailed or there'll be serious things put in place. That's not the kind of relapse that we will let anyone in, be in harm's way over. And we know that pedophiles, that has the highest rate of relapse and very low recovery. On the other hand, to just distinguish, really be clear, what is the behavior that has gone on for so long? What are the safety issues around it? You know, is there prostitution, for instance? Well, that's a real safety issue if there's unprotected sex and the risk for STDs. That's going to have a different set of boundary around it than pornography use, which still is a serious violation of the marriage. I don't want to downplay that pornography use is somehow secondary, but it doesn't have the immediate safety risks to the person. It does to the marriage, but not to the, the people involved. You know, another thing is that if a spouse, if a woman decides that they're done, that's still within her realm of choice. Definitely. She does not have to accept relapse. You know, and, and my experience with this has been that many do. In fact, most do. There are times where it's been two and three and four times where they have said, okay, I'll work through this with you. I will work through this with you. And on the third or fourth time, they basically say, I can't anymore. That's it. I'm done. And, I am done participating in your recovery process and being with you. Good yeah, luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At some point. It's just important for us to empower women to be able to do what they need to do to make their lives work. When their spirit or their soul is down damaged and dying and they just can't do this anymore, they need to be able to say that is enough. Yeah. Right. And you know, no one except that particular woman and her husband know of the years of deception or lies that have led up to the finding out about the problem. Because you're right, someone may find out about this and say, you know what, I'm done now. If there's been years perhaps where they've been asked point blank, 
think, has this ever been an issue for you? And again and again, they were lied to. Or we, no one knows the depth or extent of what's gone on before finding out. And so that's why we need so much leeway with how we support people in this. Everybody's reaction is going to be different, and everybody will have a different set of circumstances with which to work with. And I think that's important for all of the listeners to understand that there's a time where you may not, you just may simply say, I've had enough. I can't do it anymore. But my experience is many women are so willing to, to attempt the forgiveness process and to attempt to go through it. And I commend them for that. But I also realize that there's a point where they also have to take a stand and say, you know what, this is it. I can't do it anymore. And sometimes that is a very clear boundary. I remember a story that happened. It was about abuse. And this couple had been married for 30 years. And they came into my office and they were disclose, you know, disclosing some of the information that had occurred. And in the beginning stages of marriage up to about 12 years, uh, there was physical abuse in the relationship where he was physically abusing her. And I asked the question, I said, so you guys have continued in this marriage for almost another 20 years. How did the abuse stop? And she, she looked at me and just matter of fact, she said, I looked him in the eye and I said, if you ever hit me again, this marriage is over. It's done. I will not tolerate it. And they both looked at me and said, that was the last time. So I turned to him and said, so what happened inside of you that day? And he said, I realized that she was serious and I didn't want to be that way anymore. Well, that brings up a really key point of bottom lines. There's tremendous power when a woman can genuinely and honestly state a bottom line, meaning if we hit this point, this really is done. This is what's at stake. You need to be aware of what's at stake. And if this happens, this is what I will do. The key thing with the bottom line, though, is it has to be something we can genuinely follow through with. I've met women last week who who told me, you know, Jill, I said a bottom line, and then it happened, I had to set another bottom line, then it happened, I said another bottom line. <laughs> and we kind of realized that those weren't real bottom lines. They felt like it in the moment, but a bottom line is something that you can and know and you're able to follow through with. Is something other than that maybe just a wish or a desire? I wish that you won't do this again. And then when it happens, okay, well, I wish you won't do it again, but really to identify as much as you can, what is the bottom line? What is the point of no return with regards to this behavior? You know, and and one other part I would add to that, that maybe the bottom line is unclear for us. And so we need to step back and we need to do a little bit of preparation. Yeah. Well, that's part of the I don't know that you mentioned in the last hour. It's preparing the mind and saying, what information do I have? And do I need to yet have to make the most wise decision? Let me make a comment about bottom lines and pornography, though, because we both know if a spouse hits another spouse, we both know about it. So dealing with pornography and sexual behaviors, we can set a bottom line, but we often don't know. So it brings up a dilemma of how am I going to know if my trust has been breached again? And that's why I often tell couples that this is going to be a process. This isn't going to be done in six months. Right. This may take years, years of accountability, years of responsibility to say, here's where I'm at. And I tell couples on a regular basis, if it's a once a month or once every two weeks, that you look at your wife in the eye and say, I am clean. I'm doing what I told you I would do. Well, my observation has been, and I I know this may scare a lot of people out there, but I, I hope it can also bring a perspective that's helpful, is that a lot of couples that I'm seeing successfully overcome all of this, it's taking about two to three years to really <laughs> establish. Yeah, to really establish solid sobriety 
and to regain a sense of trust and setting new normals around intimacy and marriage and developing a very different kind of relationship. That takes a long time. And so my observation, I mean, I don't know what the two of you are seeing, is it's about two to three years. I'm telling my clients it's about a three-year process. So that's interesting that you would yeah. say that completely independently. Yeah. Because that is what I'm seeing. In reading some research on grief work, it's a little bit different on losing a child. And, and when the brain grieves, there are absolutely changes in the brain that take that long to heal. And you know what's interesting? I was attending a conference, and I'll just validate what you've just said. I was ta- attending a conference by uh, John Seeley, who's at the Delama Hospital in California. And you know what he said? That in the brain work that they've done in the image scanning, it takes about three years for the addictive behavior to rewrite inside of the brain. And, oh, that is interesting. And, and We're it, so smart. <laughs> so, well, so. I have women all the time who get to a one-year mark and think that somehow there should be this magic thing happen. And in my estimation, I believe only about 10 to 20% of the healing and the work happens within that first year. You get your major pieces in the following two years. And that fits with Dr. Karn's work when he talks about the healing process. And he says the first year is the most difficult in terms of not relapsing. And then then he looks at the second year in between the second and third year where there's much more growth. And then by the third year, the sexual addict is looking back and saying, oh my goodness, that's where I was at. And they themselves look back with horror about where they were at. Right. And and realistically, you know, one of the things that we're going to be talking about specifically in today's class is the stages of healing. And, and maybe we're, you know, we're talking about the relationship and the individual separately there. But I really believe that the relationship parallels both people's recovery. Yeah, I, I don't think it can be otherwise. Yeah. So, realistically, if we step back and we were to just conclude this taking the right stand, taking the right stand, maybe the best answer is there are no specific easy answers. But what we do know is that you need to step back and assess your situation, get as much accurate knowledge as possible, create internal healthy boundaries for yourself so you don't violate your own principles, but also begin to establish boundaries in the relationship by saying things such as, I don't know where this is going to go, I'm willing to try but I need more data. Then learn how to participate in your partner's recovery without doing so in a way that it's so overwhelming for you. And then make sure that you're protecting yourself. And if you're going to fight for the relationship, make sure that you've established healthy boundaries so you can have a relationship. Yes. Would there any be any other things that you'd like to do before we conclude the second class of Taking the Right Stand? I'm excited to get to that class. <laughs> All right. So now we begin this next class, which is the stages of healing. And and I really am excited for this part, the part of this class, because so many times I hear people say, I don't not only do not know where to go, but where does it end? And I think as we can walk people through step by step some of the common stages of healing and recovery, it may help them maybe paint a picture of what it can look like for them. Let me tell you something that I do with my clients to give people a little bit of hope and as we look forward to going through these stages. And I will ask if they've ever broken an arm or had a serious injury and talk about that because in first grade, I flew off the monkey bars. Don't recommend <laughs> that, I broke that, my arm really bad. And it was such a painful experience and it was a horrible experience to go through. And, and in first grade, you're very scared about that. But once the healing is done... I don't forget that it happened, but there comes a time where it's completely irrelevant. And that's what I set up as the ultimate goal. Maybe not completely irrelevant because you always keep an eye on behaviors, but moral people do that anyway. Right. And keep an eye on their behaviors. It becomes irrelevant. It becomes a fact that's in the past. 
but it's not part of your daily life and your everyday functioning and thinking. And that is the goal. And believe it or not, at this point in the crisis stage, it's hard to believe, but that is possible. Well, when we talk about stages of healing and change with this topic, if I can just share a perspective that I've seen with many women, and that is, I think one of the early stages, there's the crisis stage, which we've talked a lot about. And then I see an injustice stage where women really hold on to that flag of injustice. And right so. There's been a huge and traumatic violation of marriage in their life and, and who they are as a woman. And I find that can be a necessary stage to just protect themselves. But it's really exciting when women can start putting down that flag of injustice and really look at how do I become the woman I want to be and start taking ownership over their own areas of growth and using this time to grow and move forward. And I'll give two examples of that. This last week, I encountered two women. One who said, you know, Jill, as I've been going through groups and doing all this reading with regards to my husband's recovery, I finally realized that I have some sexual abuse issues in my life that I've never really dealt with. And I want to use some time now to look at that. And another woman said, you know, as I've studied and gone through this group with my husband, I've realized I have some food addiction issues, and I'd like to focus on that. And that's a really exciting phase where women can really start focusing less on their husband's behavior and recovery and looking at their own lives and re-engaging with life on a whole new level. You know, that stage right there is so much fun to watch. Because, it is. because you actually see the lights turn back on, so to speak, and the hope and the excitement for life. Because I see so many times in a crisis stage, there's just this shutdown. And the shutdown comes because the mind doesn't know how to make sense of this traumatic experience. And it, yet, if you really look at the stages, we go from the crisis stage, and I really like how you de- how you define that. It's the how did you say that? It was the injustice stage. The injustice <laughs> stage. Yeah, where it's just really focused on him and and how much he how much you hurt me and how unfair this all of this is. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that then that occurs after the injustice stage, kind of what you're talking about, is kind of trying to make sense of the experience. In a way that, you know, there has been injustice, but I can respond in a different way. Right. And it's critical. I think a lot of women think that to look at their own areas of growth is to somehow accept blame for the problem. And when I work with couples, I really make it clear that they both have a role in the healing. Even if there's a divorce, they both have a role and responsibility to heal their own lives and to move forward in some healthy ways. But it's just so important that they realize 100% of the responsibility to stop the sexual acting out lies with the addict. She is not at all responsible for stopping that behavior. And so really clarifying what their roles are is really critical. And if you can do that early on, it makes it easier for women to say, hey, I can look at some areas of growth in my own life, but that doesn't mean that I'm taking responsibility for this problem. I have a different role in the healing, and I may be responsible for gradually becoming more trusting of my husband as I see action-oriented change, but I'm not responsible for the pornography or the sexual acting out. And specifically, as you say that, that brings up a thought in my mind. Once they've left the crisis stage, that they can begin to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. But while you're in the crisis stage, you don't ask those questions because your mind is in safety or in survival mode, so to speak. And the moment you can start asking the questions about, well, what is my role here and how am I responding to this? You've totally left that crisis stage. Mm-hmm. 
not that you might not go back there if there is a relapse, but you really have left that crisis stage to the point where you're saying, okay, I can now look about myself and say, okay, now how could I respond to this? Or how should I respond to this? And who can I let into my life? And how can I create proper boundaries? Because change there is so critical, I believe. It is. It's important to recognize, too, though, that you can go back to that crisis stage because you have PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder from this. You can be triggered back into that space unwittingly and unwillingly yeah. and not to judge that. And I think that's a continuum. So you'll bounce, from space to, you'll bounce from healing stage to healing stage just by the nature of post-traumatic stress disorder. If you see something on TV that reminds you or triggers you, you can go right back into that crisis stage. Great point. In the sense of trying to make sense of this experience, I've noticed that many times as women try to make sense of the experience as a whole, they sometimes, when they start to reach out to people, it helps them make more sense of the experience as a whole. In particular, reaching out to somebody who's already been through it is, is helpful, but also in their own mind, journaling about what is happening so their mind can begin to make sense of it on their own. Have you guys experienced that as well with the power of journaling? That's a really powerful intervention, and I almost can't imagine women getting through without doing some of that. I agree. I'd echo it's that. A safe place to, it's a safe place to, to say the truth. And what we call that is a rant and a rave. <laughs> oh, it's, it's what we call an R&R. Not rest and relaxation, but literally a rant and rave and letting out the pain. Because as you begin to make sense of the experience, which I really believe is a stage all by itself of healing, you have to let out the pain. You have to let out the hurt. So many women I've experienced, they try to just shove it down. Just try to ignore it. Try to push it away. Try to try to just avoid dealing with it. And I've never, ever seen that work. Right. And in many Christian environments, journals are held up or writing are held up for future generations. This doesn't need to be that kind of writing. Right. <laughs> you need to... my, my own are sealed off from any future publication or generational use. <laughs> I often say it this way. Yeah. If you look at Holy Writ, we have, we have the spiritual context of it. But we also know that there's other records of the wars and the rumors of wars. And, I, <laughs> and that's what I call that. You can have a wars and rumors of wars journal that, 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 that we don't have access to. But I really think that that's a critical thing to understand. Well, and I have had clients actually take theirs and have a ritual three, four, five years down the road with the spouse or when they're truly ready and burn them or shred pages. But this writing for it to be effective has got to be honest. And not only honest, but also at the end of the rant and rave, my experience has been that the mind begins to ask other questions. Yes. Because once you've let out all of the pain and the hurt and the anguish, the mind typically goes to the next question because the, see, the, the mind is created, it's a problem solver. And when it can't solve a problem, it stays in the crisis mode. But once it begins to shift and begin to solve problems, then it says, now where do I go from here? And so the rant and the rave is completely appropriate. It is normal to be angry, to be frustrated, to be whatever. But then the next question the brain really asks is now what do I do to solve it? How can I get this over with? Because it abhors being in that much pain. And that's impossible to do if you're in the marriage and there's still continued secrets and hiding behaviors. Because the mind can't grasp that if you're trying to save the relationship. That's why right. it's so important to go back to the last class that we were talking about, taking a right stand and being able to take a stand. And there's a story I want to share with that. 
that because I think it's so powerful. I was talking with this couple. I received permission from them to share this story because it's such an incredible story. He basically would come home and he would go to his room where periodically he would look at pornography. He was basically disengaged from the family, not helping in parenting, not helping around the house. And basically she came in and she was so frustrated. She said, you know, we'd made great progress. And then he went back and started going through the same patterns. And she said, you know, I think I'm done. I'm not sure I can stay in this marriage because he's disengaged again. She said at one point he was back. He was alive. He was participating with the family. And I was falling back in love with him, so to speak. But she came in this day and she said, I can't do this. I'm really done. And I said, are you ready to tell him that? And she looked at me just as genuinely as she could, and she said, yeah. So the next 20 minutes, we role-played how she could do it by sending value and by letting him know that she was very serious. And an amazing thing that they experienced that day. I had first met with him and then was meeting with her just to help her adjust to what he was going through and then meeting them with them together. So she went home, and he realized that something had changed inside of her. And she basically did what we'd role-played, and that was basically saying, I love you, I don't want this marriage to end, but I am seriously falling out of love. And if it continues, I will be done and I will be walking out the door. And he was ticked at me that day because I, (laughs) no, he really was. And he openly told me this a week later. He said, I was really upset that you gave her permission to do that. And I said, that's not my permission. That's where, that's the truth of where she was at. Mm -hmm. And that really was where she was at. And he said, I had to look inside of my heart and decide what I was going to fight for. And I realized that she was strong enough that day to walk out the door and not come back. And I also knew simultaneously that she didn't want to and that she still loved me, but she was tired of the behavior. And I saw them recently, six months later, and they're still doing well. And we've continued to periodically to meet. But the fascinating thing was, is she was willing to let go. And he realized that he was letting someone go who he genuinely loved. And to me, that was a situation where she had to take that right stand, but she had to make sense of her experience. And that experience was, you know what, he's not changing right now. So, Kevin, you're saying the first stage is the crisis stage. Yeah. The second stage, I just want to make this clear to those who are are listening, the second stage is making sense of your experience. And, and I think Jill said it w- well when there is that, I don't know, again, how did you describe that, Jill? It's the, the period of injustice. The injustice. Really... And I think that, that maybe that's even a preliminary stage to the making sense of the experience. Mm-hmm. It's a transition from the crisis into the injustice stage or feeling the hurt of that. And then now we're trying to make sense of it, which I would say is the third stage. The human mind, again, has to make sense of the experience. It has to. And right. Both positive and negative. And once it starts to make sense of it, the brain begins to feel more hope and understanding. It's, it's inevitable. It's like you have something on your plate and it just sits there and it sits there and it sits there. Until it's off your plate, you worry about it. You think about it. And so once we begin to remove it from the plate, whether that be we're starting to go to group, we've started to get help, I'm getting individual counseling, I can see some type of progress, that's when the mind says, okay, I'm starting to see light at the end of this tunnel. One thing that the writing helps with in the making sense of your experience stage is what is your story? What are your beliefs around this so that when you get triggered into a crisis stage again or you get doubtful or you're beating up on yourself, you can go back to what is my story and what is my belief? It makes a big difference if you have the belief that your spouse made mistakes and can heal from this and can become clear from it versus the injustice story where he did this to me and he can never make it right. Making sense of your experience, it's helpful if you have a belief or a story to go back to. And that story, just a question for you there, Shondell, that story, what would it sound like? That story might sound like, 
in a positive situation where you want to work it out, that story might sound like, if this is true, my spouse is a good person who got involved in sexual addiction. I know he wouldn't have chosen to be addicted, and I believe that he can change this and get rid of this addiction. And that's a very powerful thing. If you That's a that. very powerful story. And it's a very different story than my spouse has never been there for me. He has always betrayed me. And I don't believe he will change this. I mean, but the story has to be believable. as true as you can make it. It has to be believable. You can't fake that one. No, no, it can't be a fake. But it, but it can be very helpful to have... You have a story. For a lot of Christians, it comes down to, it can come down to, do I believe in, do I believe in repentance and forgiveness? Yeah. Is this a possibility? And, and that's... So to have a story to rely on can be very helpful through all of this. So maybe that story is part of the analysis process. What is the story that I have about this experience? Yeah, and, and for a lot of women... You're coming to state your deepest beliefs through this process. So you're basically saying, and, and what do I believe about my spouse? not just beliefs about the sexual acting out. I mean, we all have beliefs about our partner and our marriage, you know, regardless of whether or not sexual addiction is a piece of that. And so right. my experience has been when this comes out, some of the beliefs about the marriage relationship all along um, can become reinforced. For instance, I, I think of one woman's story where I asked her, what, what do you most believe about your husband in this experience? And she said, I don't believe my husband is an honest person. I don't believe he knows how to be honest with me. And, and it was including the sexual acting out as well as just generally. And so yeah. I, I was working with the husband um, to reconstruct a history of his sexual acting out and also an apology that was focused entirely on her experience and what this was like for her. And as we presented those to her, we asked, you know, does this shift any of those beliefs at all about your husband's inability to be honest and truthful with you? And she said, I'll have to think about it. And in a couple of weeks' time, she'd been given written copies of the history and the apology and she really did start to feel a shift that, hang on, okay, maybe my husband is now learning how to be honest for the first time in his life. And, okay, there's hope that, oh, I'm married to someone that struggled with that, but now he's learning how to do that. And so it was interesting how her story shifted. You know, you know that, and that's a part of also how the mind works, because we act consistent with our beliefs. Beliefs, as, as long as you have a belief in place, my husband is a what? Fill out the blank, right? I'll let them do that on their own, <laughs> right? But my husband is dot, dot, dot. That, if you write that down, that will tell you what your beliefs are about your husband. A liar, a cheat, uh, you know, a, a good man who's got a problem. I mean, there's a difference in how they tell that story. The story that they have is that belief. And if we can, and if the person who's dealing with the addiction is willing to pay the price in their own recovery, they will begin to help their partner see that they are different and they can be different and change is possible. Right. But they have to be willing to be accountable for that and help in the creation of a new story for their spouse. Exactly. So, and that's a really fun part in working with couples. I absolutely love that part because not only do I believe change is possible, I expect change is going to happen. Absolutely. And I will often tell my clients, 
I will not help you maintain a tolerable marriage. Good point. It's got to be better than I, if you're here to make it tolerable, find someone else because I value, I value the therapy process more than that. Right. You know, and that's a great point. You know, and there's a part of this that I, just gets me thrilled because I'm I'm glad we're all on the same page here because I tell people you, when you come into my office, you can have an ordinary marriage, or <laughs> and, 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 and most people That's hardly the goal, right? But 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 let me tell you, when we're done here, this isn't just about dealing with addictive behaviors. When we're done here, you guys can have a deep and truly intimate relationship, which is far and beyond anything you've experienced up to this point. And and I really believe that's possible. I believe that we live with a fear of intimacy. In fact, I believe that the fear of intimacy is also what creates addiction. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And when we learn how to connect in a healthy human interaction, which maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, it is so much more fun. And, and, and that's true for the addicted person, but also for the spouse when they realize that, you know what, we are bonding. And, you know, there's one interesting point here. Have you guys noticed this, that when couples go through that initial crisis, that they connect and bond in ways that they've never done before? Oh, yes. Definitely. And, and so, Definitely. so I want to normalize that. Some people say, well, why are we making better love than we've ever had in our life? And why are we communicating better than we've ever had? The verbal intimacy is phenomenal. The emotional thoughts are, I, I love it. Can we stay here? And, and that's what I call the honeymoon stage. Because now w- w- the relationship has been, in th- it's been threatened. The crisis is here. And now we're trying to help these couples form new patterns and new habits that help them create a healthy relationship. In fact, can I speak of a, a kind of a, if we take this on a larger level, culturally, um, I find couples that go through this experience are so highly sensitive to the power of media and sexual images that intrude in our homes and in our lives. And I find as couples get better and better at setting boundaries um, around that kind of thing, movies, music, whatever's coming into their home or is around them, they start um, thumbing some of the cultural beliefs and messages about sexuality and intimacy and marriage. And that is a powerful place to be because culturally, excuse me, we, we hear a lot about sex sells, but it's not sexual satisfaction that sells. We sell sexual discontent so that people will come back for more and more and more. There's this huge agenda in the world we live in to make sure that men and women don't learn how to love one another well. Because if they learn how to love one another well, and they have their needs met within their relationship and marriage, it cuts down on the need for external things. And so when couples can really start learning how to love one another well and become more resistant and don't buy into those cultural messages, it's powerful. And it's scary. For the consumer index and the pornography industry, because those couples are now more resilient to those immature and unhealthy messages about marriage. Great point. There's an irony at this point, too, because socially and culturally, very often family members or people who are close to this couple will dismiss their relationship or negate the relationship as something less than just at the point when the relationship is getting truly more intimate and stronger than it's ever been. 
and can become. Absolutely. Which, which is a really interesting balance because we're talking about creating a healthy relationship here when we're also in the process of dealing with an addictive behavior. But I, right. I, 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 what, what, there's a, such an interesting balance there because I know couples oftentimes, they'll, they will engage in sexual relations almost like when they were newlyweds. But as I tell most couples, that's the honeymoon phase and I expect that there's going to be some time thereafter, and I don't know when, where something's going to happen and it's going to trigger pain and hurt and you're going to disconnect for a period of time. Right. Let's teach them how to go through that phase. And we actually have a whole hour we'll spend on this concept later on. Well, and I really like the the point that Shondell just brought up of other people negating and and invalidating the relationship because we have to recognize, and we haven't mentioned this yet, that even if a couple are progressing well together and healing from this, there's a whole other system around them of friends, family members, people in their faith community who haven't been engaged in that healing with them and are probably mistrusting of the spouse that's been acting out. And so it can take... Just just be patient. Everyone's going to have a different timeline with uh, re-engaging with this person or this couple and trusting them again. And some of it ties into, I, I believe I mentioned this idea in a previous class, of living above suspicion. When a behavior has been done in secret, it's very hard to prove that it's no longer going on. It's, it's very difficult to prove we're not doing something. And so taking action-oriented steps and really revealing our new self, our best self in in ways that people can see. This isn't in a flaunting way, but just really demonstrating to our spouse, more, most importantly, and the world around us that we are making changes and we can earn people's trust. Yep, and that and then sometimes that's leaving the computer at home. Sometimes it's not having getting, just getting rid of the internet altogether. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's right. avoiding avoiding business trips and saying, you know what, this is I can't take this trip. It's something that will you know hurt my relationship. That's exactly right, and that is a very powerful message to a spouse that says, I really want to work on this relationship. Yeah. And I, I don't want to. Make and I happen. I've met with men who have changed careers have moved to a different city with their family in an effort to really live about suspicion and prove in an action-oriented way, you know what, I'm ready for a new kind of life and to avoid all triggers and situations that were linked to that previous life. Okay. Now, that may seem drastic, but I'm just putting that out there that there's so many different ways of starting from scratch and, and really living above suspicion. Yep. So switching gears back to another point in the healing process real quick. A question somebody asked, okay, I, I understand what's occurred. We've, we're, we're kind of making it through the crisis stage. I'm starting to make more sense of this experience and my understanding things a little bit more. But how do I begin to pick up the pieces? There's still there's still things that I've, I'm not doing that I used to do. I'm not feeling as much happiness as I once felt. I'm a little bit more anxious. I worry a lot more. How, how would you encourage them to pick up the pieces and put part of their life back together or to, as you say, maybe recreate or create a new life? I usually start by asking the following question, and it's typically asked of women, and I'll say, what are the best parts of you and your life that have been dampened or oppressed or tainted due to this problem? And really help them reclaim and remember the best parts of them in their life that before this problem arose. It may be that they laughed a lot or they may have been really into photography or loved going out for lunch with girlfriends, whatever it may be. And to do an inventory of those things about themselves that they really enjoyed and to bit by bit start looking, is there any room for re-engaging that right now? Which do you feel most ready to allow in again? 
I like that. Um, one of the statements I might make to clients on these kind of occasions when they're ready to start picking up pieces is, I hope they will say to their spouse something like, I am moving on, I'm going to work on this healing process, I'm going to get back to who I am. I sure hope you can keep up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really like that. There's, there's a principle that I firmly believe in, and it's called the productivity principle. Productivity, by in its very nature, when we are productive, we feel better about ourselves. Productivity could can be simple things, though. For some women, it may be getting the, the vacuuming done and the laundry done. But for other people, they have their goals to say, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to... And, and the productivity principle says, if you are productive, your mind feels better about itself. Yes. And so part of picking up the pieces is to actually do what you your mind tells you you can do. And, and that is a very powerful thing that I've seen many women latch onto and say, yeah, I can do this. Well, and picking up the pieces, I hope for women that they can put something into their lives that they've always wanted to do and take this as the reason or the time, even more than just picking up what they had. What have they always wanted to do and never done? This is the perfect time. May I add to that? I think that is such a, an important point to be made. I was reading uh, several months ago a study about addiction that two men, two male researchers, and I, I'm not remembering which university it was from, but they suggested, they, they, they studied the brain, and they found that one of the most powerful healing mechanisms for overcoming addiction was to learn a brand new skill that was very challenging to the brain, like learning a new language, learning a new instrument, a musical instrument, tackling a new sport, something that would create whole new pathways in the brain. And I find that that's helpful advice for the women and spouses as well, because we can become almost addicted and obsessed with this whole experience and obsessed with what our spouse is doing or not doing. And like just like what you said, this can be an incredible opportunity in their life to think, what have I always wanted to do that I haven't done yet? Or what's a goal that's important for me to accomplish? And this is such a great time to do that because it will be healthy, not only for your your spirit and your life, but for your brain to mm-hmm. create whole new associations and pathways that can help reduce the strength of some of those really hurtful ones. And in essence, what they're doing is, you know, I, I think in the very first class, I talked about writing down the things that we think about, the five things that we think about that are most commonly on our mind. But the moment you start learning a new skill, your brain automatically starts to spend time on that new thing that you're learning, whether that's playing an instrument, whether that's a new sport, or whether that's, you know, some women go back to college and, and, and finish out what they had started. Other other women actually say, you know, I'm going to learn how to scrapbook. I'm going to, I'm going to do something that I've always wanted to do. And right now is a great time because you have leverage in the essence to do that. And the more it's a skill or has meaning that you need to completely focus on, the more your brain gets a rest from the obsession and the pain. Because you can't be learning a new instrument or a new sport or concentrating so hard on doing something and have this in your mind at the same time. That's right. So this is a great time to give yourself permission to live more fully. Go out on a limb. You know, and in in a different direction, kind of along the same lines, I've noticed a trend where a lot of women will reach a phase in the healing where they feel a real desire to reach out to other women that may be in an earlier phase and they join committees or coalitions or activists 
focus groups along this subject or they start writing. And that's a really exciting phase. Now, that's not for all women. And I don't think that's something that should be encouraged early on. But later in the healing, when your own needs and clarity, you know, have been met and have have been there, it can be really powerful for women to feel like they're doing something about this issue on a larger level. And part of that is the reintegration process, which I think is part of the, a stage of this whole thing, to re-engage back into society. And, and many, because many women, most of their lives they've, been, they've given service, whether that be in PTA or whether that be just taking care of their own children or whether that be the, just taking care of their family responsibilities, taking care of a parent, a, a grandparent, whatever it may be. And part of that now is to re-engage back in life so you're spending your time doing the things that are are almost normal for you, back to a a place where you've been accustomed to living your life in a joyful way, helping people. I was reading a study not long ago that found that the happiest people are people who are serving other people. Now, I don't believe that's necessarily possible at the beginning stages of healing, but I believe as people reintegrate into life that the service that people give is a very, very good way to be a happy person. And if you want, uh, the the reference on that is uh, Dr. Martin Seligman's work, if you've ever read it, on authentic happiness. And uh, really interesting research that shows service is one of the most powerful ways to be happy. I think at this point, too, when we get to the reintegration, after picking up some pieces and we're going to reintegrate, it helps to make a conscious choice and say, I am choosing to live. And that's very self-empowering at that point. You can't do that earlier because you don't feel like you've had a choice in any of this. But at this point, you can say, I'm going to choose to live happy or enthused, or I'm going to choose to do service. And at this point, that's irregardless of what your partner does. Yeah. If he acts out again, if, if you have the problems again in the future, you've been through this once and you're saying, I'm going to choose to live this way. And that's a powerful place when you can come to that place where your life is, your relationship is important, but you are responsible for your own life. You know, on Chandel, in our next class, when we talk, we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. The whole focus will be finding inner peace in times of trial. And and part of that is the self-belief. And I really believe that as we spend an hour just talking about how to heal the inner core and the inner self, so they realize, you know, we haven't talked in depth of how to help the women feel good about themselves and how to nourish their inner self. And so mm-hmm. in, in the next class, we'll spend the whole hour just talking about that very concept, how to find that inner peace throughout this whole process. Because if we can help you get to that place of peace, you won't be fretting. You know, if they relapse, it might hurt you, but it's not going to overwhelm you. And so we'll spend in the next class, we'll be, we'll spend a significant amount of time on that. And then in the final class, we will be talking about your relationship a little bit more in depth, your relationship now what? And we'll, we'll talk about how to help couples reintegrate into the relationship if that's what they choose to do. So real quick for both of you, we've got about five minutes left. I want to spend some time talking about personal growth and specific suggestions, because I believe that, that, that this is one of the final stages of this process of healing. What are some of the best things that you have found that women are doing to grow and to help themselves feel more healthy? Well, you know, I, just yesterday I, I was reading just some uplifting books, and I came across this quote that said, aging happens growth is intentional. And I love that because I think the key thing with personal growth is it's it's intentional. If we really want to mature and develop into our best self and who we are intended to be, we, we have to be mindful about that and, and really examine and do inventory on, on what our growth edges are and be creative and brainstorm. I think too often we don't talk enough about creativity and really fostering 
creative ideas of how to move things along in our lives. I really like that idea of fostering internal growth, but I think in order for a person to do that, they they have to feel like they deserve it. True. And unfortunately, far too many times they don't. It's like, I, I'm not sure I deserve it. I, I mean, they've put everybody else ahead of themselves. And this is a time in the healing process where you have to focus on some internal growth. And I can't emphasize that enough. When, when I see women who say, I don't know who I'm at or I don't know where I'm going, I simply don't know what to do, then it's a matter of helping them nurture and find what would be most growing for Kevin, them. Kevin, I have a, a task I do with that that I'd like to explain really quickly. It's very fun. I have women start a list of what they know about themselves. Now, that sounds so easy, but part of this is not judging, being able to write down truths about themselves, what they know about themselves. And initially, they will start with, I like this certain color, or I love to look at mountains. But then they start to come up with more and more profound things as they learn not to judge who they really are and to write truths about themselves. It can be a very helpful intervention because, like we said before, the apple card is turned over and they don't feel like they even know themselves anymore. And it's fun to do this discovery trip where, what do I know about myself? What do I, what do I like? What do I not like? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 who who am I? I've had women really set themselves free by saying, I don't care. One thing I know about myself is I don't care if I don't travel to certain places and do certain things. I want to spend time doing recreation. Well, then you're clear. You're clear on who you are. So when somebody invites you to go do those things, it's like, no, I'd rather do this. Just establishing a sense of self again. Yeah. And sometimes that feels threatening to the partner because they're like, mm-hmm. who, wh- wait, what happened? What happened to this person who was just maybe always taking care of everybody else and always doing this and always doing that? Well, I really believe that should be an exciting thing for a spouse because I know for a fact as, as a husband that my wife is the happiest when she's doing things that nurture her inner self. When she's taking a class, when she's able to go play basketball or she's able to participate in something outside of the home that she enjoys doing. I just know that when people grow individually, they're much better in relationships. Yeah. It's it's just a fundamental principle, principle of growth. Absolutely. One area of growth and development that I think is toughest for a lot of women is learning how to talk with and deal with themselves in a compassionate, positive way. Especially um, Christian women that I work with, we talk a lot about having Christ-like relationships with others. Mm-hmm. But in the work that I do, I talk a lot about and work with developing a Christ-like relationship with oneself. And that can be really doing an honest inventory of the messages and beliefs we hold about ourselves. We talked earlier about beliefs we have about our partner, but there's a whole set of beliefs we have about our And the truth is, is that people thrive and grow in situations when they're not criticized and put down. Sometimes we have this opposite view that we need to be critical and hard on ourselves, otherwise we're just going to be these lazy blobs that don't do anything. When in fact, if we are compassionate and nurturing and loving towards ourselves, it brings tremendous power and energy to foster growth. And one that can be like learning a whole new language for people that tend to be very negative with themselves. And so one thing that I will often recommend... We're, is we're just out of time. We'll have to continue on uh, next time. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> 